If you're open your Bibles, please, to the cha- uh, first chapter of Luke. We realize from Melissa's reading that Zechariah had not spoken in nine months. Gabriel had come to him when he was in the temple doing his duties, and the angel comes to him completely unexpected. You wouldn't have just never thought that he would see what he saw. And he had a specific message for him personally, that his wife, both of them on a pension, was about to have a baby. And John was so amazed that essentially he blew it. And Gabriel said, you're not going to speak until the baby's born. It's going to happen, but since you didn't think it would, you're going to not speak until it. I'm going to give you some downtime. Going to give you some quiet time. You need some quiet time. Now, I think it's really interesting. What does quiet time do? To a talker, quiet time calms you down enough to where you can actually hear for the first time, maybe, in a long time. So, so Zacharias didn't speak for nine months, but God did speak to him during that nine months and told him some of the most amazing things that were about to happen. So Zacharias actually acts as a prophet here. There has not been a prophet in Israel since Malachi, 400 years before. But he is going to act as a prophet, and he is going to open his mouth, and the very first thing that comes out of his mouth after nine months is praise God. Praise God. Is that the first thing on your lips when you wake up in the morning? Praise God. What a good God he is to us. What has he done in my life? And what is he about to do that I hadn't the slightest idea that God was up to? Because sometimes you get into a rut and you think that you're the one in control and you're driving this boat, and it's just not true. God is doing as God has always done and will always do. So you, you thank the Lord for, your, for the kindness showed to you, and you pray with fervency over those things that hasn't happened that he has promised to do. And who knows, it might be today. Who knows, it might be today. I don't know if kids would think that would be pretty mean for Jesus to come on Christmas Eve. I don't know. <laughs> I'd be okay with it, though. You have to realize that I'm going to read the, what is called the Benedictus. Benedictus is just the Latin word for, for blessed. This is from ver, starting at verse 68, and we're going to go from 68 to 70, 79. And this is his song. It's called Zachariah's song. It's his prophecy about Christmas. And it is what God has told him during these months where he was forced to keep his mouth shut. I just think it's pretty amazing. You have to realize there are 12 verses in this passage in Luke, but the Greek sentence, it's one sentence. I'm glad we don't write like that anymore, a sentence that takes an entire paragraph, but, but this is one sentence, and in this uh, sentence, Zechariah blesses the Lord and then gives his reasons. All right? So that's what I want to meditate on on Christmas Eve. Why should we praise God? Why? Why should we bless the Lord? What are the reasons? What's God about to do? And you have to realize this is Christmas Eve also. This is just about to happen. That Jesus Christ, God's complete answer to to mankind's problem, 
is about to be born, God himself is entering into time and is going to do something about it. He's going to do something about what he sees, and he will do it perfectly. What Jesus Christ has done is all we need done. All we need. It is perfect. And so Zechariah is going to say these things. What is God going to do in Jesus Christ that we should thank God for, that we should bless God for? So let's look. This is verse 68 in Luke chapter 1. Let's read this as God's word. I'm going to read through 79. Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. He hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and in righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Let's pray. Father, our, our, our great Father, we just want to bow our heads and thank you for your, for your majesty. We want to thank you for, for your immense mercy to us, that you would meet our great need. Every one of us uh, sinners against you, every one of us deserving of, of torment and punishment, every one of us in no way capable or, uh, or willing to have you as our king but you have come to us. Emmanuel is God with us. You came to us. You did what you needed to do for us, and you saved us. We did not save ourselves. We want to say thank you. We want to say that you're amazing. We want to give you glory and praise. We want you to to know that we're so satisfied with what you've given us. We ask that you would, in every way, tend every heart separately and as we need it. Um, Those who are troubled and those who are are wobbly, those who are frightened and those who don't know what's going to happen, those who are hurting and those who are love people that are hurting, I just ask that you would quiet our hearts as we know that you have come. We're not waiting for you. You are here and that you are willing to be our great Savior. We want to... uh, to triumphantly sing your praises today. We want to think on you well. We ask that you would take care of us, that you would, that you would uh, allow us to, to live lives that would, would grow closer to you and not farther, that, the, that even our deepest problems would only cause us to love you more. We ask that you would be our teacher today, that you would, that you would allow us to, to see you for all, in all ways, I ask protection upon your church this day all over the world. 
as people would want to hurt us. I just ask that you would guard us and keep us and, and not allow uh, anyone to, go, to come close to your people. Would you, would you do wonderful things and herald your son today in this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at 68. Blessed be the God of Israel. So I saw six things that he praised God for, six things that he blessed God for, that he saw, and I'm just going to call them out. The first thing I see is in verse 68. For he has visited and redeemed his people. Jesus visited us. That This is God who came and visited his people. But he didn't just visit his people. He visits his people with the idea of doing something about it. God doesn't just watch the high chair fall over. God is watching with the idea of doing something about it. God meets our need the way we need to be met. And he didn't just visit the people so that he could turn up his lip and scowl and go, oh, they're worse than I thought they were. He, he came with the idea of offering himself as a ransom to God's wrath. The wrath that God promised us was serious. It would mean disaster, perpetual and total disaster forever because of we deserve it. And the, more we, the older we are, the more we know that we deserve it. But Jesus came knowing that he came as God to visit his people, that he might die for us, that he might pay. That's what redeemed mean. He paid for us. He paid all of what an eternity in hell would be for us. He paid. And he gave it to God. And God's wrath was turned away from us. Jesus stands in front of you and absorbs God's wrath. God's fury, like a, like a nuclear bomb, furiously pours upon the Lord Jesus. And he stands and he absorbs to the last drop everything that would fall upon us. And he took it and he redeemed us. And he came and visited us to redeem us. That's the first thing that he says, bless God. Bless God. Now, to bless God, I've never quite understood well what that means. The word bless comes into English, eulogy. Eulogy means to say the highest possible thing about someone, approximating the truth. So I don't know what God is. I don't know what God's goodness is. I don't know what God's wisdom is. I, I don't have the concept of knowing what God's power is or what God's holiness means. But as I say God is holy, as I say God is good, as I say God is kind... I'm blessing God. So I don't bless God the way God blesses us. Okay, I don't bless. God is not, I don't add value to God. My praise does not make him higher or better or richer than he, than he was. All I'm doing is saying what is true of him in my own ears. And in my own ears making my heart more appropriate because people ought to praise God. He's worthy of it. If every, if every voice of every human in the entire world sang to God at the same moment, it wouldn't approximate God's worth, but it's appropriate. And for his people to praise him is appropriate. It's what is right. And he is saying, bless God, for he visited us. 
and he visited us with the intent of doing something about it. I pulled what Tony read to us, and I just, I just think this is exactly what I wanted to say. This is from chapter 3 in Exodus. God is speaking to Moses, and he's telling them to go back to the people because God is about to do something. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen that which you will do in Egypt. Now, if it would have only stopped there, the idea that God knows what we're going through, that's n- that is not... There is a word called empathy. And empathy simply means I understand. But that's not enough. God didn't just empathize with us. God doesn't just understand. God took on what we needed. He took on our pain. He visited us in our weakness. He was born in a barn and, and lived in deprivation and then died as a, as a blasphemer on a, on a Roman cross. He put himself under and interposed himself in front of his people. That's what God did. So he didn't just visit us to see what was done in Egypt. 17 goes on. I have said I will bring you up out of the afflictions of Egypt unto the land of the Canaanites, Hivites, Amorites, Parasites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. God did something. He didn't just visit. He delivered. And this is what Jesus does. He delivers you have to see that the ultimate of this is in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He visited us and he took on flesh and dwelt among us. Melissa's got a copy of the Bible that we call the Ghetto Bible. It was written for inner city, an inner city youth group. It was a, uh, their youth pastor was a, he was a Greek and Hebrew scholar. And so he basically translated the Bible into ghetto. And John 1.14 in the Ghetto Bible says, John be- or, Jesus became a man and moved into the neighborhood. <laughs> and I just think that is fantastic. He became a man and moved into the neighborhood. His visitation, his redemption, restored the broken relationship that we had with God. We were reconciled to God. We were so distant that we would never, ever come back. We were get out of town and don't come back. But we were brought all the way back to where we are actually not just looking at our shoes, but you will look into the face of your God because of what Jesus did. You don't, God doesn't tolerate you for Jesus' sake. He loves you and adopts you forever. His love will pour out forever because of what Jesus did for you. That's why he's worthy of blessing Through people, through Jesus, people are reconciled to God. This is verse 69. This is the second thing that I see is why we should bless God. 69 says, And hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He raised up a horn of salvation. So a horn symbolizes a symbol. It's something that when you see it, you recognize what it is. It's power, it's authority, it's strength. So that's the idea of a horn. It's, it's authority. It's, it's there, he has the reason of being God. God is God because he's God. 
that, that he has authority, has power. The horn of salvation is that Jesus, with all power, with all authority, with all, he, Jesus wasn't the doormat. Jesus was humbled. Jesus was not humiliated. He humbled himself to death and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. For that reason, God highly exalted him. He had full power, full authority, and he he divested of that and gave to us. To to fish in a barrel is not really bragworthy. The idea that that you, you shoot a sweet little Bambi and then pose him like a big ferocious animal is silly. Jesus was full power, full authority, and he himself lowered himself and became our Savior. He gave up his own life and then took it up again. The Romans did not expire Jesus. Jesus gave up the ghost and then assumed it again. The Bible speaks of Jesus himself raising himself from the dead. That's what our God did. And he said he raised up a horn of salvation for us. That means that God did it. God raised up a horn of salvation. He did it. He planned it. God is sovereign. Every day, every act, every thought, every person interacting all throughout history formed everything that was necessary for Jesus to then come. He did it. He raised him up. He orchestrated all of it so that it was exactly what it needed to be. And it said it was a horn of salvation. That it means that we need saved. We need saved, that, we, that we're not doing well enough, that it's not going to be fine. We can't handle it. That we need rescued. Because on our own, we've done nothing but offend God, and it will be God that destroys us. It will be God that destroys us absolutely fairly and justly. And it was God's wrath that was turned away by the death of Jesus Christ. And God did that. God did that. My worst enemy is the holiness of God. And God knew that and raised up a horn of salvation. The holy Jesus died in our place so that all of our wrath that was towards us was was turned away from us and put into Jesus Christ. And he died in our place. So this is salvation. And it is in the house of his servant David. He's the Messiah. This is the promise that God always promised that he would do something about it. This is the, the stamper of the, of the head of the snake. This is the seed of the woman that would, that would squish the head of the snake. This is the one that was promised from the very first day. And, and that is what we see um, in the next verse. This is, this is verse 70. Let's read 70 and 71. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. So that was number three, if you're keeping track. Number one, he's visited us and redeemed his people. Number two, he raised up a horn of salvation for us. And number three, we should be saved from our enemies, that he would rescue us from those that hate us, that he broke into the devil's strong house and bound the devil and took his stuff. That's us. He did it. 
Now, I don't know if you like whodunit books, but the Barnetts, that's all we do is read whodunit. We've read them all, okay? And I don't know if you like Agatha Christie, but you need to know that Agatha Christie knows before she puts the pen to the paper whodunit. I, I, you just have to know that. You don't, the, the author doesn't catch up at the end of the book and go, oh, I didn't know it was so-and-so was going to, was going to, I didn't know the butler did it. She knew the butler did it. And every page she showed you that the butler was going to do it and that he did do it and that he, that he was doing it. And you're missing it, missing it, missing it, but it's all there. And God wrote one book and there's one author about one subject. And all of it is that Jesus Christ will be exalted to the highest heavens because he's worthy. And the reason why that he showed that he was worthy, he was already worthy. But the reason he proves that he was worthy is because he came and he took upon the, the lowering of himself to the very dust and became our savior. And now those people who benefit by his saving them will have nothing but praise in their mouth because you saved me. It's not conceptual. It's not, oh, you're great because of all the great things you did. You saved me. You took me out of the low and you put me on a rock that I now can, I now can, be, can have a life that's worth living. You did that for me. Every one of God's people is independently praising God, independently so thankful that, that nothing could be asked of them that they would not do. They're totally, totally gods because they know what God has done for them. And it says that from every day since the beginning of the world, every page of the Bible, every word and every comma and every, every sentence and sentiment is all about the same thing, that God intends to come for his people and save them from, here, from their enemies. That's what God intended to do that we have enemies, we have people that would destroy us, we have, a, we have Satan that would throttle us, and he has decided we will be rescued. He grabs us by the scuff of the neck and pulls us out of the fire. And when Isaiah said, no, Jeremiah said, I'm a brand out of the fire, a little stick that, had, that was lit on one side and getting smaller and smaller, it was as being consumed, and some merciful man stuck his hand in the fire and pulled that stick out and stuffed it out and put it down. And you're wounded by your sins. Your hair was on fire already, and you're wounded, and you'll remember it. You'll remember it with pain, what you've done. But God blew that out, and you will forever be his because of what Jesus did. Jesus reached his hand into the fire to get you, and that's what he did. He is the champion, and he is the rescuer of his despised people. That's what is worthy to praise God for. You bless God for that, that we would be saved from our enemies. Let's look on. This is verse 72. 72 and 3 we'll do together. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. You see, God promises things, and then he keeps his promises. I've actually seen a Bible that had, on the, on the front page of the Old Testament, it didn't say Old Testament. It just said promises made, and then it had all the text of the Old Testament. 
And on the frontest page of the New Testament, it didn't say New Testament, it just said promises kept. And it had the text of the New Testament. I was like, that's good. Because that's what, that's, a lot of times you don't realize that that's what God is doing. That God promises things, and if you recognize that God will keep his promises, then you can hold tight when you can't see. When you don't know where you're walking and you don't know what's going on and you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and you don't know anything and it might not go well. And he keeps his promises and he's determined to get you all the way to glory. All the way. He's going to get you all the way to glory. He promised you. And your trust in him is just holding on to what he said you Staying firm and you hold on to his promises. God made a promise to Abraham that his descendants, all the nations of the earth, would be blessed. That was in Genesis 12. He made a promise to David that someone of his sons would always sit on the throne forever and ever, ever and ever and ever, that he would never, there would never be an eternity that there wasn't a son of David sitting upon the throne. And David said, I don't understand that, but wow, thank you very much. Thank you. I don't understand how that's even possible. What does it forever and ever mean? But the son of David will forever rule. God promised Isaiah that there would be a suffering servant, someone who would be low, someone that you would not even recognize as a man. It said in chapter 52 and 3 that his visage his countenance, his face was so beaten up that you didn't recognize it as human. It didn't look like a human. It looked like meat. That he was, he was brutalized and that through his stripes we are healed. He says that that suffering would bear the sins of many and make intercession for the transgressors. And I'm the transgressor that he interposed himself and his blood splattered that, that land in that day. And I tell you, the people came out of their graves on that day. The earth quaked on that day. The, the sun stopped shining on that day. The maker of heaven and earth died on that day. But three days later, raised himself from the dead. That is what we think when we say, bless be God of Israel. That's what we mean. God made a covenant with Israel, and they broke it on the first day. Every one of them, yes, we'll keep it. Yes, we'll keep it. Yes, we'll keep it, and our children will keep it, and our grandchildren will keep it forever. And the very first day before the sun went down, they all broke it and were dancing naked around a calf. The first day. That was, the, that was the covenant that God made with men. So Jeremiah promised God is going to make a new covenant with men. And Jesus will see to it that it's kept. So when Jesus keeps a promise, Jesus is no less God than God is. And for that reason, when he said, I will go to the cross and I'll take the sins of all on me, all the people who come to me, I will no wise cast out, and they will forever know bliss only for that reason. Christmas is the tangible expression of God's faithfulness to humanity. It's 
touchable. It's, there's a date on the map. There's a date on the year that repeats year after year. And when you look and we sang something from 1350, it means that people who are now dust have, have in faith relied on God being good through Jesus Christ. And those dust people are still alive praising God now. Now. And by the way, it's God who makes Christian men good. I have to say that. Let's go on. 74. This is 74. That he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. That's God's intent. He delivers you. He does not forgive your past sins and tell you to be good. He doesn't say everything up to 15 seconds ago is gone. Now you hold better. You fly straight and get a haircut. He forgives the sins that you will not commit until your deathbed, and those are all gone. Everything that you will offend, every way that you will blaspheme, every way that you will not do right is gone. And he has delivered you completely. All of that gone. All of it's gone. There is nothing pressing on you. You do not, God does not give you a a wheelbarrow full of cinder blocks to carry all the days of your life. You are free. And you float like a cork. And all of that is so that you will, in holiness and in righteousness, serve him without fear. God doesn't say, I'll send you to hell if you're not good. Now be good. That's not our God. Our God took hell that we might in no way, in no way even understanding what he did, just in simpleness say, thank you, God, for what you've done. Blessed be God of Israel. And this is always God's plan. This was always God's plan. I'm going to take you to three places. I'm going to take you to three places I don't take you usually. This is Isaiah 35. Pay attention. Okay? You don't see this very often. This is Isaiah 35, verse 9. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast shall go thereupon. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. It was like, There's a road, and all of my people are going to walk on that road, and there's not going to be anything to be afraid of. No one's going to come out behind. There's not going to be a pickup truck full of 14-year-olds with machine guns stopping your car. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. There's not even going to be a barking dog. You're going to walk with joy singing on your tongue as you walk towards your worship. That's what God intends. This is Ezekiel, also Old Testament prophet. Verse uh, chapter 39. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. That's interesting. But I've gathered them unto my own land, and they have none left of them anymore. Neither will I hide my face anymore from them, for I have poured out my spirit in the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. Anything that I disciplined in you is over. Discipline accomplished. You now love me as you should love me, and you are safe. I just think that's wonderful. This is Zephaniah chapter 
3. The Lord has taken away thy judgments. He has cast out thine enemy. The king of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear thou not. And to Zion, let not thy hands be slack. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love, and he will joy over thee with singing. Go on, this is 76. So he's looking down at John the Baptist. John the Baptist was born eight days ago, and he still couldn't talk. He was like, mm -mm. And the baby was born, and they get the baby ready, and all the relatives come into town, and they all take him to get, to get him circumcised, and they want to name him because that's part of the ceremony, and they all want to name him Ze uh, Zechariah. And he's like, mm-hmm. And Elizabeth, no, his name's John, and they don't listen to her. What are you talking about? And they ask, they ask him to write it down, and he writes, his name is John, and his tongue is loosed. And he's looking down at that baby as they're, they're now putting him into the covenant, the symbol of the covenant, and he's talking to his son, and his son will be John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. And he looks down at his baby, and he says, Thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the faith of the Lord to prepare his ways. And here's number five. This is what I wrote down as number five. Reason for blessing God. To give knowledge of salvation unto his people for the remissions of their sins. You need to know it. John the Baptist helped people to know. It's not enough that God did something somewhere else that we didn't know about and that it helped us. He tells us our danger. He tells us our need. He tells us where the Savior is. He, he calls us out morning, noon, and night, and he extends his hand to you, and he tells you how wonderful he is, and he tells you what a, what a worthy Savior he is. And then as you feebly grasp him, you know now that you've been saved. That knowledge helps you. You will know the truth, and that truth will set you free. He said, the knowledge of salvation of his people for the remission of their sins. They must know that the baby Jesus in the manger on your Christmas cards will one day suffer the wrath of God in your place. And that remits, that's another redemption word, it paid for your sins so that now you have no offense before God. Nothing. There is no offense before holy God. Holy God is not offended by you. You're not on probation. You're not despised and you're not tolerated. He loves you because there is nothing between you at all. God only loves his people for that reason, for Jesus' sake. This is verse 78. Through, and this is my number six, through the knowledge of the tender mercy of our God. Because it's the same sentence, you have to realize. This is the same phrase. He's saying the knowledge of salvation for the remission of sins, and he's this is just the, the next word. And the knowledge of, your, of God's tender mercy. You must know that God was merciful to you. You must know. It's not enough that God was merciful to you. You must know his mercy because his mercy causes love. And love prompts my heart to follow him. Love prompts my heart to clean my hands. It's love is the only powerful enough emotion to cause you to do right in this world. Only love. 
Fear will not do it. If God said, be good or I'll send you to hell, we would, every one of us, go to hell. Every one of us could look straight into the law of God and one by one, like lemmings, jump right over the pit. But he instead showed us mercy, and when we know that mercy, when we have knowledge of that mercy, then we will love God, and that love will make us great. You might be low. You might be the lowest of the low. You might be lower than the low people would call you low. But God will know that you're great, and you will do great things in this world, great things. Nobody will know them, but God will know them. God will know what he did through simple people who love him. And his love comes from knowledge of his mercy towards them. Whereby, this is still 78, whereby the day spring from on high has visited us. There's God visiting us again. This is the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus is called the day spring. What is the day spring? It's the sunrise. Jesus is the sunrise. It's, it's hope. It's light. It was dark a second ago, and now it's not. It's in your face. It's in your line of sight. It's right there. And it was dark, and now I can see. And not only can I see the sun, but I can see everything the sun is shining on. I know what reality is because the day spring from on high has visited us. Jesus Christ came and visited us with the intention of redeeming us. 79 says to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide their way, their feet in the way of peace. You, you see sitting in darkness, that's like, those are echoes. Those are echoes of, of Bible verses that you would have memorized in Sunday school. This is Isaiah 9. The same passage that says, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, his name shall be called Almighty God everlasting. That's the same passage. This is verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them the light has shined. Jesus came and shined on us. Shine on us so that, first of all, we can see. Shine on us till we know we've offended God. And when Jesus doesn't come to you unless you trust him and then he comes to you and then you know that you've offended God, your mourning will be way more after you come to the Lord than ever before. People who don't come to the Lord don't know that they are damned. They don't know anything. They're blissfully ignorant to their end. But you know that you've offended God. It's now you mourn. But that mourning is now insulting to God. You mourn and then instantly say, thank you, God, that I have a Savior. And you take that mourning and he turns it into dancing. <laughs> because to mourn, you don't mourn when you have the bridegroom with you. You mourn when he's gone and we have the bridegroom with us. So now you know that you've offended God, but now you know why that, what Jesus died for. And now you recognize how valuable he is, and that's called worship. Worship is placing worth into Jesus' name. How much is he worth? You do not know how much he's worth until the day spring rises, and you see what you, what you did not see. And then you evaluate just how great he is. 
and then your heart goes to them, and then that turns to love, and that love, love turns to faithfulness. And he guides his people into peace. This is Psalm 28. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he will teach sinners in the way. The meek he will guide into judgment, and the meek he will teach. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and in truth unto those who keep his covenant and testimony. And then I pulled as as our ending, Proverbs 4. But the path of the just is as the shining light that shines more and more unto the perfect day. It's like walking into the sunrise, and it's, it's chill, and it's dim, and it's perceptible, but it's not glorious yet, but every minute it's more glorious than the last minute. The sunrise doesn't mean it's there. It means that it's rising. You can already see, but you will see more and more and more and more unto peace. In a million years, you'll be at peace. Some of you, in 50 years, you'll be at peace. I'm going to stop there. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Merry Christmas.